You're listening to episode 180 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Well, I've got a really fascinating conversation for you today. I had a chance to speak with Andrew Clavin about his new book, The Truth and Beauty. If you're unfamiliar with Andrew's work, he has been a longtime novelist and uh, also through a study of scripture came to a relationship with Jesus Christ, something he's written about in previous work. In this book, he takes a look at how the English poets led him to a deeper and uh, a new reading of Jesus within the Gospels. He spends his time today writing about culture, also a really popular podcast and writing op-eds all over the place. And our conversation is both a personal one about how we ourselves read the Gospels, but also about how we recognize the time we're in, how Jesus interacts with this time as he has times past. A really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks for listening. I'm joined on the podcast today by Andrew Clavin. He's an award-winning writer, screenwriter, and media commentator. An internationally best-selling novelist and two-time Edgar Award winner, Clavin is also a contributing editor to City Journal, the magazine of the Manhattan Institute, and host of the popular podcast on DailyWire.com, The Andrew Clavin Show. His essays and op-eds on politics and religion, movies and literature have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post and the L.A. Times. Uh, he joins me today to talk about a new book he has out. It's entitled The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. Andrew, it is a real honor and a privilege to have you on the Pastor Writer Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. No, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I got an advanced copy of the book, and uh, I, uh, I read every word of it, and I think there's a, a review of the book up on Daily Wire that I think captured it well. In the opening paragraph, it says, it's one of the books you'll want to reread as soon as you finished reading it for the first time, and then adds, there are a few books that give us that today. And I, uh, I felt very much the same about the book. I, I found myself, the more I read, saying the more I want to go back and reread, it, it is really an incredible achievement. So thank you so much for uh, allowing me an early look at it. Oh, thanks very much. That's really nice to hear. Thanks. Well, I want to get uh, maybe before we get into the book itself, I would love to hear you maybe talk a little bit about your interest in writing and what led you down the path of wanting to be a novelist. You've done so much work beyond that, which we can get into some too. But I, I think if I understand correctly, it really started for you as wanting to be a writer, wanting to write novels. Yeah, really, a novelist is all I ever wanted to be, and all everything else has sort of come out of that uh, and and taken me by surprise. Really, yeah, I, I never wanted to do anything but make up stories and, and write them down. Uh, I think it was my my earliest ambition after being you know a cowboy and maybe a fireman. I think uh, I I wanted to be a writer, and you know it, it developed for me naturally. I, I was uh, I I had a you know, I, I won't call it an unhappy childhood, but it wasn't a, a very pleasant childhood. And I was lost in daydreams. I, I kind of soothed myself with daydreams, but I always had this deep commitment uh, to making sense, that things had to make sense. And I, I've retained that. And so my daydreams had to make sense. And I would go into lengthy, uh, to, I would go to great lengths to make sure that my daydreams held together as, as stories. So, you know, you're a little boy and you dream about whatever, having superpowers or being able to fly or driving a car or whatever little boys think about. Uh, but always I would have to create a backstory uh, where that made sense, where how, how could an eight-year-old drive a car or where did you get superpowers? Uh, and that was really good training for becoming a, a story writer. I've sort of been doing the same thing ever since. 
at some point within that writing career and those aspirations of becoming a novelist, I know you sort of found yourself coming across these questions of faith and particularly around the person of Jesus. How was it that desire to be a writer? And the way you just described it makes sense to me too, not just wanting to be a writer, but through your writing, wanting to make sense of things. How did that inevitably sort of lead you to these questions of faith and to, to Jesus? Yeah, I think inevitable is the right word. In the first place, you know, be, wanting to be a writer and being a very dogged kind of guy who wants to do things very thoroughly. I wanted to read everything that had gone into the books that I love. And I started out reading detective stories. Uh, I love detective stories. I love the, the male role models that I found in some of the great American detective stories, like the detective stories of uh, Raymond Chandler with his hero, his kind of knightly hero, Philip Marlowe, sure. who wanders through this corrupt world as an honest man. I wanted to be like that. And as I began to read them, I began to realize that they sort of went back. A lot of them, they referred back to the Arthurian legends. And in the Arthurian legends, I started to find, uh, you know, signs that that Jesus and the Gospels were at the center of Western literature. I was a Jew, a secular Jew, really, not a believing Jew. Uh, so I didn't turn to the Gospels as a uh, as a religious person in the least. I turned to the Gospels looking for the heart of the stories that I loved. And over time, what happened, and it was a long time, a time of, uh, of you know, personal troubles, a time of striving to become a professional writer and, and coming up against a kind of brick wall of my own, uh, my own problems, my own d- disordered mind. I, I, I began to realize that the world I believed in, the world that I lived in, the world that I knew was there, which was a world in which there were there was right and wrong, in which there were some things that were moral and some things that weren't, in which it was better to be free than a slave, in which it was better uh, to love than to hate. All of those things didn't make sense without an ultimate moral authority. Uh, when something is better than something else, it must be closer to an ultimate good uh, than it is to far away from that good. And slowly, I, I began to accept that. But I, before I could accept that, I had to get past my own problems, because as long as I was such a messed up individual uh, in my youth, I felt that turning to God would just be a crutch, that the only reason I would believe in that would be to ease my pain. And funnily enough, because a lot of people turn to God in their pain, I was too proud to do that. Uh, it was only after a, a psychiatrist, a, a genius psychiatrist kind of rescued me from my own madness, only after I went sane, which I'm, I'm the only person I've ever met who has gone sane. Um, it was only then that I could sort of turn and say all this logic of morality, all this world that I believe in, that I have seen in the great works of, of the West, uh, they only make sense. They only make sense with a God. And through getting to know that God, I got to know Christ. And ultimately, it was simply a matter of integrity uh, that I had to accept him. You mentioned the phrase uh, a moment ago in your answer that you discovered that Jesus was really at the center of Western literature. You say that in the book as well. And it, it struck me, um, you and I have sort of opposites. I grew up in a Christian home, a, a Pentecostal Christian home at that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, taking literature classes through school and education, you know, none of my teachers were saying to me, hey, by the way, Jesus is at the center of this this uh, Western literature we're studying. In my mind, I almost had this sense growing up that um, those things were hostile or opposed to my Christian faith, that you it was somehow hard to reconcile the great works of literature and then this sort of uh, Pentecostal faith in my case that I, I was growing up in. Uh, maybe you could speak for a moment and expand on, because I think it's a, it's a helpful way of framing. And, and uh, uh, from people who are Christians, who are readers and writers themselves, um, that there is a kind, of, a kind of confidence and courage, a kind of boldness in knowing that, look, this faith I have in Christ is at the center of so many of these great questions, these great works that great writers have been wrestling with across all this, these years. 
you know, a lot of effort has gone into removing uh, Christ from the culture. In the European Union, when they have their constitution, they refuse to even mention the Christian dimension that formed, I mean, Europe used to be called Christendom, but they refuse to even mention that. A great deal of effort among our elites and our academics and our intellectuals has gone into uh, sucking Christ out, uh, which is like lifting the bones out of a fish, really, uh, out of our culture and out of the things that we acknowledge are the the bulwark of of who we are but if you look he is always there and and the there is no such thing after the year zero there is no such thing really as a great western writer who is not at some in some way engaging with this god uh this incarnate god and and so <laughs> when when you begin to understand that writers are sometimes that even if they're writing as atheists as they write do later on the God that they don't believe in is the Christian God. You can't understand their even their atheism without understanding the God they've rejected. And if you don't see that, you are not actually watching the drama of Western literature and Western philosophy unfold. Now, obviously, there is a West that comes before Christianity, the classical West, the West of the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. But it is amazing how often the philosophy of someone, for instance, like Plato, seems a distant echo of the philosophy of of Jesus and of Paul. And the way those two kind of intermingle in the thinking of Thomas Aquinas is what becomes the Western literature that we love. It is what becomes the modern world. And as I say, even the rejection of that is a rejection of a specific God. It is not a rejection of all gods or any God or, you know, uh, some vague idea of religion. It is always Jesus who is at the center of our thought. We cannot get rid of him. He's, he, he is as Westerners, if not as human beings, he's the clothes that we wear, the skin that we wear, and we can't take it off without taking off ourselves. You write about this in the book, specifically talking about uh, radicals, this radical political ideology across time. And you say at one point that radicals seek to overturn the very traditions that created their values. Um, I think that's what you're getting at here, too, as well, that even in our own day where we're rejecting Christ, we're doing it based on a value system that Christ himself has informed. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. You know, we have to remember that we live in time, we're shaped over time. And sometimes when we have new insights, we forget the fact that those new insights were given to us by the the past that shaped us. So I, I talk in The Truth and Beauty, I talk about the moment when Jesus says, um, uh, talks about divorce and says, you know, Moses gave you the law of divorce because he knew your hearts were hardened. But in fact, what God has joined together, man cannot tear asunder. In other words, the, the laws of Moses shaped the people who received Jesus. They are formed by those laws, even though those laws may point to a higher law and a higher covenant in the New Testament. And so I I always feel, and I mean, I I talk about this at great length in the book, that that radical politics, for instance, uh, seeks to dismiss the past as if it had suddenly just the, the idea of of wisdom, of morality has suddenly just fallen on them like the dewdrops from heaven, you know, instead of being formed in them over slow years by being uh, a Christian culture. And that was a mistake. I think the great mistake of the French Revolution is at first they just said, well, we want to get rid of the kings. We want to get rid of the oppression. We want to get rid of the hunger. But they ended by saying we want to get rid of everything that made us. We want to, as one as one philosopher put it, uh, we want to strangle the last king with the entrails of the last priest. Uh, they, they violently wanted to reject everything that had made him what what 
made them what they were. So it, we see this today, of course, when we see someone, for instance, uh, tear down a statue of Thomas Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson held slaves without ever thinking that the only reason we know that slavery is an evil is because Thomas Jefferson told us. And the only reason he knew is because he was the product of a Christian culture, which he himself in some uh, part rejected. And so this utter rejection of the things that make you actually leads to a a path you won't, won't like very much, a path of bloodshed, a path of ignorance, a path of immorality, whereas changing in compliance with the culture that shaped you is the way forward. It is a way that you can advance. We don't you know Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow and forever, but we change and we have deeper knowledge and can acquire a deeper knowledge over time that our forefathers couldn't always acquire. And so it's, it, it is this, this paradox of radicalism that, that it destroys the very thing that created what it loves. And that's why radicalism almost always leads to bloodshed and and tyranny. Already in our conversation, you're starting to draw out uh, some of these connections between time periods. The book itself, The Truth and Beauty, is centered around uh, a set of uh, romantic English poets and writers. Uh, You, as we sort of started at the beginning, you've been a novelist, you've been doing some writing for the screen, you've been doing some cultural commentary, memoir, I know. Um, What brought you to the topic of saying, I want to do a deep dive into romantic English poets and out of it, uh, provide a, a way of reading into Jesus. How did this book come about? And what got you interested in the romantics particularly? Yeah, it seems to come out of left field, but it really doesn't. You know, I mean, I've always loved the romantic. I poets. felt that I, way as I read the book, too. It, it, even as you're saying, it's like, OK, this, I, I get what you're doing now in light of it. But yeah, you're right. For somebody who might just be picking up the book, you know, what is Andrew Clavin doing? Yeah, it was a nightmare thinking, how am I going to explain this to an editor before I send him the <laughs> manuscript? Those are fun conversations, yeah. Yeah, um, but, but you know, I always loved the Romantic poets. They are the greatest uh, of English poets, with the exceptions of guys who spring up from time to time, like Shakespeare and John Milton and so on. But for, for this little period of time, the six greatest poets in the English language were all living on this little island. You had uh, Blake and Wordsworth and Coleridge and Shelley and Byron and Keats, uh, all of them working at the same time and uh, playing off each other. But I, I was having a conversation one day with my son, who is also uh, a, a Christian and a very, very intelligent fellow with a doctorate in classics from Oxford. And and I was saying to him, you know, the more I dive into the Gospels, the more I, I wrestle with the sayings of Jesus, the more I find his sayings very strange and very hard to understand. They don't just uh, explain themselves. We're so used to them. We're so used to saying, love your enemies and turn the other cheek, uh, and we, that we don't think about, do I want to love my enemies? Why would, why would I do that? Why would I turn the other cheek if somebody hits me? And would I, in fact, do it? Uh, and And so... You know, I was very particularly struck with the scene in the Gospels where Peter walks on water and he b- becomes fearful and he starts to sink. And Jesus says to him, oh, ye of little faith. And I think like, well, how much faith are you supposed to have? How many steps on water are you supposed to be able to take? You know, what is what is Jesus talking about that I'm not getting? And my son very wisely turned to me and he said, you know, I think the problem is that you're trying to understand a philosophy and try, instead of trying to get to know a person. And I thought instantly, I thought this is an incredibly wise remark, because when you when you get to know a person, it's it's not really a philosophy that you can write down on the page. It's a whole sense of someone, a sense of what he would say in a given situation, of what he would do in a given situation. And so I set out on a kind of radical experiment, which was I set out to find if I could get to know Jesus as a person without any 
theology involved, not even St. Paul, nothing, just him, just him in the Gospels, what he's saying, what he means, how he sees things. And to do this, I, I taught, I, I like to say that I taught myself Greek, but I, I'm not very good at it. I taught myself how to read it. And I would go through like maybe five sentences of the Gospel every day, translating them from the Greek. And it was painstaking. Well, I, I took multiple years of Greek, and that's about how far I got as well, too. So it's, we're it's in the same a, club. Yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's a, a brain busting language, I have to say. But but I did but I did try to get to know Jesus just as himself, just as you would sort of get to know, uh, you know, a character in a novel or a character in a memoir or a biography. And the thing that kept happening to me is he would say these mysterious and sometimes puzzling things is the words of these poets kept coming back to me. And and I would think, you know, he's kind of saying what Wordsworth was saying in this poem and what Keats was saying here. And and I thought the reason for this seemed pretty clear to me, which was that these poets lived in a world very much like ours, where faith had vanished from the intellectual uh, mainstream or was vanishing from the intellectual mainstream. And, and atheism and unbelief had become the default. And these poets, certain of these poets, began to recognize that when that happened, certain essential questions came into, into being. What is truth? As Pontius Pilate said, you know, what is what is truth? If Jesus is not the truth, then what is? How do we find it? What What is morality? Are, are, are there such things as women and men? Or are those just societal roles? Uh, how do we change politics for the better uh, without destroying ourselves? All the questions that we're asking today, they were asking then. And these poets, in in kind of finding their way the way poets do, not by philosophy, but by touch and feel and feeling, they started to find their way back to Jesus. And they didn't always know they were doing that. Wordsworth ultimately um, uh, converted, became a Christian. Coleridge, who was the most brilliant of them, he knew, he understood that, that Christ was at the center of everything. But they started to build this bridge back to Jesus. And in doing that, they, I, I think they got at some of the things that Jesus was originally saying before the churches and the theologians and the philosophers got hold of him and started to put it in language that has now become almost impossible for us to hear. You know, I, I hear people saying things all the time about what Jesus felt and what he thinks. And I think, well, you know, that's not really the Jesus I know. I mean, he... He's not this kind of namby-pamby nice guy who wants everything to be pleasant. He's not, he's not a person trying to make the world a better place. He tells you the world's not going to be a better place. You know, he says, you know, give your money to the poor, but the poor you'll always have with you. Follow me and the world will hate you. Pick up your cross. You're going to be uh, tormented and crucified for a bit. You know, he never says the world is going to be a better place. And so all these things that, that people sort of say without thinking, are actually not what Jesus was talking about. But some of the things that the poets were writing about are the things that he was talking about. And and in seeing it in that poetic language, for me, it just became new. It became fresh. It became easy to hear what he was saying in an original and uh, and in the original way that he meant it. One of the things that stood out for me right away from the book was I, I was somewhat familiar with some of the works that you were drawing from Milton and Wordsworth Keats. I was not, there was sort of a hole when it came to the bio, uh, the biographical information around their lives. There was so much I picked up reading because you're not just quoting excerpts from their work. You're really diving into their life and why they're wrestling with those particular questions. And this idea of there being similarities between this period of the romantics and the period we find ourselves in, it's easy for us to stumble into the sort of truncated history where we imagine things are just progressively getting worse and we're sort of entering for the first time uh, a society that's tearing down God or removing Christ. 
What was it that struck you about the parallels between the period of the romantics, the inevitable questions it was creating for them, and uh, the parallel to our own time? Yeah, the, the parallels to me are uncanny. Um, to begin with, uh, you know, what you said about the poetry, it was very important to me that the reader doesn't have to know or love poetry to come into the book, but that he might want to know more about poetry as he leaves the book. And so yeah, I wanted very much. You, you're intrigued by these characters enough that it, it, it feels like an entrance into some of their works now, knowing them and understanding why they're approaching those things. I think it does that, that for sure. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because what what always gets me about these guys is with all these brilliant minds on this little island, they interacted in very dramatic ways. Uh, they wrestled with drug addiction and they wrestled with romance and they wrestled with, uh, with all the things that we wrestle with. And, yeah, the and number of illegitimate health. children in the book oh. <laughs> struck me as well too. It's like every chapter. So, Oh, it's, it's amazing. And, and they, and they did say things like, you know, they wanted to get rid of gender roles and marriage and, and all the things that people are saying today. And it struck me just the history. You know, we went through in the 60s, this revolution of this cultural revolution, where we thought that it was the age of Aquarius. And after this, everything was going to be different. And they went through a revolution, which was the French Revolution, which wasn't just a a battle fought in France. It was an entire awakening of a continent to the idea that maybe they could live in a different way. And, and, um, and Wordsworth said of the French Revolution, bliss was it in that time to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. And it sounded very much like Woodstock. You know, it was all, every, we're, we're going back to the garden. It's going to be great. And then just like the 60s kind of devolved into the Cold War and a, and a conservative reaction, the same thing happened with the French Revolution. It turned into the terror. It turned into the Napoleonic Wars. And, and people had to reassess. And when they reassessed, they found they got canceled. I mean, Wordsworth got canceled. He said, you know what? This revolution isn't working. And the uh, radicals who basically owned the culture started to shut him down. There are famous poems written about what a, a bad guy Wordsworth was, was because he started to become a conservative. Uh, so that kind of intense political fighting was also going on there. The genre questions were going on. The idea that we have that we call postmodernism, that there's no such thing as truth. There's no such thing as morality. That was very much on the table then. I mean, it was very much being discussed uh, in, in philosophical works. And one of the things these poets did, not all of them, because they all had different points of view, but one of the things they did was they started to find out, well, what is it inside a person that, that sees morality? What is it that sees beauty and truth and, and equates those two? And when, when John Keats said, beauty is truth and truth beauty. And that's all you need to know in life. You know, that that's, a, that's an amazing statement. You have to start to unpack that because by beauty, he doesn't mean things that are pretty. He doesn't mean, oh, you like, you know, purple and I like red. What he means is some kind of con- essential connection between what the human heart at its best finds beautiful and what is true about life. And once you start to do that, you start to go back to the source. And this was Coleridge's great insight was that in order to have an idea of what is truly beautiful and what is truly true, you have to have some kind of idea of what a man should be. And he saw that what idea was obviously uh, Jesus Christ. So all of these things were just going on then as they are going on now. And the idea that you would find these answers in Jesus was just as difficult for an intellectual to bear then as it is today. Uh, and, and that the idea that your traditions and, um, your traditions and your way of life were worthwhile, got you canceled then, just as they get you canceled now. Um, and yet, and yet these 
these poets left something indelible and, you know, lasting that reminds us that there is a way back, uh, that not all roads lead in one direction. Yeah, this way back feels so important uh, to come out of the book. Wordsworth is such a central figure in the book itself, um, especially through that first half. He sort of keeps emerging in the midst of these conversations. You use a line from Lewis to say that if he goes on, he will be converted. This experience, which, of course, you've already narrated, eventually happens for Wordsworth. Do you think of these romantic poets, um, putting ourselves in our own day now as a reader, do you think of them as companions for understanding our time? Uh, or there are, are there also currently people like Wordsworth that you think are also companions for our time that are that are close, that are asking the questions, that are leading us in the right direction this way back that you're describing? I, I think there are. As a matter of fact, I, I very much think that there are. I sometimes call it the secret knowledge, uh, not because it's really secret, because many people who read and think know about these writers and know about these thoughts, but they don't want to discuss. They're afraid to discuss them because the world has conspired to make religious talk seem like the, the talk of fools uh, and has basically exiled it from the intellect the intellectual conversation, the minute you say this is a spiritual question or this is a God question, or this may be a demonic uh, a development, you've lost a certain number of intellectuals, but those those writers certainly do exist uh, and certainly are thinking. One of the things you have to remember, though, is that, as I said, these were six of the greatest writers ever who ever lived, all living on the same island. The ordinary, well-read person might have heard of one of them. He would definitely have heard of Byron. Byron was famous in his day. Keats died unknown. Shelley died more or less unknown. Uh, Coleridge had a, had a presence as a speaker, uh, but he wasn't like the most famous guy in Wordsworth. The people who loved poetry knew Wordsworth. Uh, I don't, I don't think that guy ever got a good review in his life. I think <laughs> that he was always getting these reviews that he wasn't as good as he used to be, but nobody ever said how great he was in the moment, mm. you know? Yeah, that's um, tough. Yeah. So, so they weren't necessarily that famous then. And I think the same thing is true now. Um, I frequently think of a book that has changed many lives that I know, a book called After Virtue, uh, sure. or a, another book called Poetic Diction by one of the Inklings, Owen Barfield. Um, these are books that me and my friends pass around. This book will change your life. I don't know how many copies they've sold. I don't know how many ordinary Americans would have ever heard of them. They're uh, not on yet, the top 10 list. I know exactly, that. So, exactly. Yeah. You know, but, and yet, and yet, while all this noise is going on of people saying, oh, women don't exist or men can change their genders or, you know, uh, America is indelibly racist or whatever these people are saying, this truth is going on. These people seeking and speaking truth and changing lives for the truth they speak is going on. Uh, and it'll be another generation before these incredibly great writers, incredibly wonderful thinkers are known just as it was then. It seemed like as I was reading the book, one of the things as a writer you love are the 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 connections between things. I mean, so much of the book is about how these writers sort of stumbled ac across one another and impacted one another. Or there's there, there's actually one of my favorite parts lines in the book is you're writing about a uh, a day where uh, two of them are together and you happen to interject a little line saying. It just happened to be that that poem was written 100 and some years before my birthday. <laughs> you know, you're seeing these, uh, th there are all these connections. Some of them feel providential, in fact. Um, how as a writer do you, well, number one, how, do you, how did you put the work in to find all of these connections? And what is it that you find so interesting about the way those things seem to be connected uh, unexpectedly? Well, we, we used to have this idea in the West, this has kind of fallen off, that we were involved in what was called the great conversation, that 
it wasn't just you and me talking because we happened to be alive at the moment. It was all of us talking, Plato and Aristotle and St. Paul and St. Augustine and, and Keats and Shelley and all of these people were in this conversation together. And that when you and I speak, they are here in the conversation talking with us and we can refer to them and, and use their, uh, their wisdom as part of what we know. And that's what, uh, basically the radicals in our, Academy have have sought to destroy the idea that it was all bad. It was all steeped in whatever the particular sins of the time were. So if the sin was racism uh, in 1776, then we don't have to listen to what Thomas Jefferson or James Madison said. Or if the sin was sexism uh, in you know 1815, then we don't have to listen to what people said then. Uh, you know this is this has been a formulation of the West's attack on our culture, an attack on the things that make our culture uh, the great culture that it is. And so uh, what fascinates me is that whether you try to silence it or not, this conversation is going on. Uh, It is like the communion of saints, like an earthly version of the communion of saints. And so you see these artists drawing, I mean, Wordsworth, for instance, was in a continual dialogue with the late, the then late John Milton and his his great epic of the fall of mankind, Paradise Lost. Uh, Wordsworth wanted to recreate a poem like Paradise Lost, except he wanted to place it, instead of placing it in the Garden of Eden and in hell, he wanted to place it in the human spirit, in the human mind. He was transforming, I think C.S. Lewis called this the great inward turning or some some phrase like that. Um, and, and so, these connections are always there. And in fact, in fact, just as we were talking before about tradition and radicalism, if you don't plunge into that conversation, you will find yourself either reinventing the wheel or destroying the wheel. And so that you can't get anywhere. Uh, it's only by engaging in this conversation that you are you know, lifted on the shoulders of giants and you can see uh, things that you couldn't possibly see before. Every artist, every artist turns back to the artists who came before. There's not such a thing as a, a sculpture or a painting or a novel or a poem that is not based on ins- or inspired by uh, a novel, poem, sculpture, painting that came in the past. And that's because we're not here by ourselves. That's a kind of silly, egotistical prejudice of 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 that privileges, as they might say, the current moment. Uh, we are here on a in a string of time. We live in time. God doesn't live in time, but we live in time. And in that time, our life is just a moment, but the lives that came before us and the lives that come after us uh, go on and on. And I, I think that that's what so fascinates me about every line of poetry ever written is that it is imbued with all the poetry that came before and like a prophet, it speaks into the world to come. I talk about that a lot in the book, uh, about how when you describe well the world, the moment that you're in, you're also describing the future. And so much of the things that are coming now or happening now happen in Shakespeare. You know, they, they're foretold in Shakespeare. It's an amazing thing. We were just not here by ourselves. We are here in this, in this chain of humanity. Uh, and, and poetry, I think, is one of the most immediate ways to step into that that flow of time. Yeah, I wanted to ask a question specifically about poetry because you you mentioned earlier you sensed well enough this isn't just a poetry book. You wanted people to be able to read it who maybe don't normally pick up poetry. Um, I can say through all of my seminary years, 
there was not a lot of poetry in my seminary education. Uh, it wasn't a part of the curriculum, Greek, but not a lot of poetry. But yet you quote towards the end, well, really the book, um, you build in the first two parts um, sort of through these poets' lives. But the last chapter just sort of, I'm trying to find the right language, it explodes into these observations about Jesus out of those questions in a way that, you know, that was the part I really found myself wanting to reread because you, uh, as you say, trying to avoid theological language, you have this reading of Jesus that struck me as remarkably true. Um, well, the, the book ends with this idea of um, don't we feel a burning in our hearts? And that was a little bit of my sensation reading through your observations of Jesus, the, the, the aliveness of him. And I think that comes from this idea of poetry for you. You quote uh, Coldridge writing on poetry as saying that Jesus is a sensorium, an apparatus of human sensation. What is that connection between Jesus and the senses that poetry awakens us to? Well, I think a lot about the the idea of Jesus as the word made flesh. And of course, that word, word is comes from logos and it's not just doesn't just mean language. Uh, it means the whole idea in God's mind of how of how the world should work. But but still, the translation of, the, of logos into word is very telling to me because really, when you, when you see Jesus, what you're seeing is, is God expressed in human flesh. And when you understand that, you start to understand that we are all a piece of creation expressed in, in human flesh and that the things that come out of our mind are a continuation of that, of that creation. And so once you start to understand that, you start to see Jesus as as expressing something in everything that he did. And this is very much what the prophets do. The prophets would break a jar, for instance, to show what God was going to do to Jerusalem. They would act out. Uh, one, one of the prophets married a prostitute just to show what he thought sure, of yeah. the way, yeah, the way Many strange real, acts. Yeah. <laughs> Israel behaved. And, and what Jesus did is, is he completed that process, uh, as you would think, by, by his whole life being a kind of language, which makes us understand that we ourselves are a kind of language. You know, I often hear atheists, it's, it's, it's really comical. One of the things I love about atheists, that just because it gives me a good laugh, is that so often they know their subject, which is usually some kind of science or, or psychology uh, very well, but they know nothing about theology, right? And uh, you'll hear a guy go on and on about how there is no ghost in the machine, which is a very specific uh uh, philosophy about what the soul is. It's a ghost inside this machine. But I, most people, I don't think, believe in that at all. We believe that we express our souls, that our flesh expresses our souls in the same way that a word expresses the idea. The idea is there without the word, but it doesn't come into being without the word. The word is the form of the idea, and we are like that. I express the idea of Andrew Clavin, and we ex each express the idea of ourselves. And so when you see that and you see Jesus doing that in such a way that we can imitate it in such a way that it is sort of the ideal expression of the human life, not my human life, his human life, but it's, it so expresses the idea of God that by becoming part of that life, by, as, as the scriptures say, dwelling in him or becoming a branch of his vine, uh, you express yourself in the, in the fullest possible way. And that's what I think Coleridge meant by the sensorium, the, the guide to how we can rightly feel about the world. Because after all, you can be deluded about the world. You can think you're in love, but you can be wrong. You can uh, think that slavery is justifiable, but you can be wrong. Uh, and, and you have to learn those things over time and through experience. But the very fact that you can be wrong means you can be right, right? I mean, to be wrong means to not be right. And that means that you can see truth and you can see beauty rightly. And 
you need a guide for that. And there has to be an expression of that in the world for you to imitate. And that's what Coleridge saw Jesus as being. And one of the things, you know, going back to the idea of connections, one of the things that really got me about this story as I was telling it was how Coleridge was a terribly troubled man, but also the most brilliant man of his generation. I call him the last man who knew everything because it was before the explosion of knowledge that made it impossible uh, to know everything, but he knew everything there was to know. And it's amazing how he in his trouble somehow touched each and every one of these writers and changed their lives. Uh, he turned Wordsworth into a poet. He inspired Keats at the moment when Keats was frozen and couldn't find his way through grief uh, to create the great poetry that he would create in his short life. Uh, Mary Shelley is one of the writers I deal with, not a poet, but the author of Frankenstein, which I think is a very profound book about gender yeah, roles. Great chapter uh, in the book as well. Uh, uh, there's one of my favorite chapters in the yep. book, I have to say. And 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 when she was a little girl, uh, Wordsworth came, uh, Coleridge came to her house and recited his great poem, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and, and Mary hid under the sofa so her mother wouldn't send her to bed and she could listen uh, listen to the poem. Uh, and it affected her, and it, it plays a large part in her vision in Frankenstein. And it's just amazing to me that this one mind, who was a greater mind than the rest of them, the rest of them were great poets, but they weren't great thinkers like Coleridge was, but he was ruined. He couldn't put his thoughts down in, on paper himself in a clear way because he was a drug addict and he was a broken person. He could never fulfill the things that he wanted to do, but somehow he inspired each one of them uh, and went from each one of them. And it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story of how one man knowing the truth uh, can, can plant that seed in other people. Yeah. We, we just keep bumping up against this idea of it's all one conversation and the inevitable, if you have the integrity to take serious that conversation, the inevitableness of faith questions of Christ at the center of those, you wrap the book up with the line, everything becomes literature. Is that a good way of thinking of it? Yeah, it definitely is because we, because we live in time. Because we live in time, our lives are a narrative. And because we live in time, history is a narrative. And one of the things you notice, I notice this all the time, especially with political thinkers, sometimes with religious thinkers too, is they try to think outside of time. Uh, they try to think, uh, well, you know, as I said before, Thomas Jefferson was bad because he owned slaves without thinking of him in his time, moving us into our time. And, and when you start to understand your life as a story, you begin to see that it has a point and a purpose. It's, it's not just kind of going from cradle to grave. It's going from beginning to end, which is a very different thing. And, and to understand life as a story and to understand that stories do something. They, they're not just there. They're not just entertainment. They don't, and they don't give you a moral. What stories do is they give you a vision of the internal life of, of man. And that vision of the internal life can be right or it can be wrong. And when you get it right, and this is one thing we haven't talked about, but it's so important to me, when you get it right, when you get the Jesus stuff right, there is such joy. And, and by joy, I don't mean happiness. I mean vitality and gusto. There's such joy in life, living with purpose, living and understanding, oh, I'm actually becoming something. I'm actually the branch of a vine that is supposed to bear fruit. And that fruit may be a child. That fruit may be an act of love. That fruit may be a, a book that you write. It, it, it's going to be whatever you were made to be. It's going to be the person God made you to be. And once you live life like that, I, I, call, I call it like a great big jar of happy sauce, you know, because it's like suddenly you think, oh, you know, I don't have to be miserable every day. I don't have to sit around and, uh, you know, whip myself over my sins. I don't have to wander around wondering what, what's going on. 
God has got that covered. You just have to live into his life. And suddenly you'll see that your life makes a, a kind of sense, that, the kind of sense that stories make, not a moral, not a, oh, this means that, simply a kind of expression of a, a beautiful thing that God made. And that's what I think these poets were doing. And I, I think that that's what they were expressing. And I think that when you understand them that way and go back to Jesus and see what he was saying, he was saying something very similar. Yeah, well, the book is really, again, such a great achievement. The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. Um, maybe we could wrap up your your hope, your desire for the book. Is it that, you know, like I think we experience reading the book, people find a, a new way of hearing Jesus? What's what's your desire for somebody picking up the book? That, that's exactly it. I mean, I, I hope that people find, A, a little bit of the joy that I have found in, in hearing Jesus's words in this way. Uh, but also, you know, we talked before about those books that I call the secret knowledge, the, the, the Owen Barfield book or the uh, after virtue, you know, these are books that at three o'clock in the morning, uh, when things don't seem as good as they should, or things seem out of joint, uh, you reach for these books and you find a friend. If I had any wish for all the things that I've written, but m- this book may be more than any, uh, it's that people uh, searching, uh, people hungry, people maybe feeling uh, depressed or bad or, or that God has abandoned them can turn to this book as a friend and have somebody talk them through uh, to another way of looking at things. Uh, that's what liter- this literature has done for me. And I, I would like what I write to do that for other people. It is uh, so much like our culture to isolate us and make us feel like these questions are our own and ridiculous. And so a gift like this book to come along and find, no, some of the greatest minds in history have been wrestling with the same questions we are and that we're a part of that conversation as well. Um, it is a gift, a remarkable gift. And ultimately you do it so well, you lead us to Christ and help us see him in a new way. So I'm so grateful for it. Well, thanks so much for saying that. It means a great deal to me. It truly does. Well, if people want, uh, obviously we'll have uh, links in the show notes if you're interested in picking up a copy of the book, but if people want to follow some of the work you're doing, um, uh, this is a a part of Andrew Clavin, as we said, but there's plenty of other things you're writing and doing and thinking about. And I know trying to join that conversation and be honest about it. What's the best way just for people to keep up with your work if they're not familiar with it already? Well, if you go to andrewclavin.com, uh, it's K-L-A-V-A-N. Uh, if you go to andrewclavin.com, you'll find all my books and, and some of the things that I'm writing. And if you uh, care to listen to my podcast, it's on every Friday at the Daily Wire. Uh, and it's political and cultural and hopefully funny. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I think people might really enjoy it. Yeah, I'll have links uh, in the show notes for all of it. And again, thank you so much for the time, the hard work you put into the book. Uh, really excited for people to read it and believe it's going to be a, a real gift to so many. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com. There I've got information about the book we discussed, The Truth and Beauty, as well as uh, some of the other writings that Andrew Clavin has done. And while you're there, you might also consider checking out The Five Masculine Instincts. The book has been out about a month now. I've been getting some great reviews, and I'd love for you to pick up a copy of it. And if you do read it, feel free to share what you think. You can do that anywhere you bought the book, leave a short review, or if you want to email me directly, feel free to do that through the website as well. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.